morning, Redeemer. This is on. Yes? Perfect. Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1, as we continue our series. Now, I just want to share a quick story to kind of help to set the stage for the text. Uh, many of you don't know this, but I grew up in Mississauga, and uh, like many young boys, I wanted to play in the NHL. So my last three years of hockey, forgive me, last two years of hockey, I managed to make a single A rep team. It was amazing. I had a leather jacket with the team's logo on it, a hockey bag with the, the team's logo on it. We had to wear a suit to every game. It was pretty cool. But quickly I realized after a few games and a few practices that there was a distinct in crowd on the team. There was seven or eight, which if you know anything about hockey... That's about half the team. Seven or eight little boys, well, not little boys, but boys that grew up going to the same school, having the same teachers, same classes, going to the same parties. So this group kind of ruled the team. And if you weren't part of the group, you felt like you were on the outside. It wasn't a good feeling. And whether or not these boys did it on purpose, they became so insular, and they began to restrict the good things that they were doing, Right? All the parties, all the hangouts to themselves. Now, on a far more important and significant scale, this is what was going on in the church of Ephesus. You had these false teachers, right? these false teachers who were beginning to restrict gospel proclamation to only a select group of people. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that your theology got so distorted that you started to think that certain people shouldn't be preached to. This was a horrific belief, and it had to be stopped dead in its tracks, because earlier on in this letter, Paul had given us some of the sweetest words we could ever hear. He said, Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And there's no distinction. There's no race, culture, ethnicity, or nationality that should ever stand in the way of someone hearing the free and saving gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a truth which transforms lives, families, cities, and entire nations. The Apostle Paul believed this. And he believed that if the church believed this message believed that it was for everybody and was functioning properly, that they could transform the city of Ephesus from a city that worshipped its dead idols to a city that worshipped the living God. Because Jew or Gentile, king or peasant, slave or free, man or woman, God desires for all people to be saved. This is what Paul believed. This is what Timothy believed. And this is what you and I must believe this morning. The gospel is for all people. Hallelujah. So with these things in mind, hear now from the holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good 
and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, many of you already saw the word then. Whenever, whenever you see the word then or therefore, you've got to go back and see what it's there for. In this case, Paul is continuing his charge to Timothy to set things right in Ephesus. In Ephesus the charge that he gave him in 1 Timothy 1.18. It said this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Timothy's charge in these verses, the verses that we read, was to preach to the church the awesome scope of God's grace. The truth that God desires all people to hear the gospel and to believe it. The gospel, the good news, is for all people. So, in order to help these Ephesians again see this awesome truth, in order for them to expand their view of grace that was being choked, and to see how the the love of God extends to all people, Paul urges Timothy to have the church do four things. And hear me now, Redeemer, these truths, these things are just as important for us today. This is God's word for us today. Paul says the first way that we expand our view of grace is to widen the scope of our prayers. Paul says to Timothy in verses 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul begins this new section in the letter by emphasizing the need for the church to be in prayer for all people. And if you notice at the beginning of the sentence, he says, first of all, first off, Paul says, before we go any further, we have to get this right. The gospel is indeed good news and it is for all people. So because of that, we need to be a people that are praying for all people. It's not just our loved ones, not just for the local and global church. No, we have to be a people who pray for all people. Where is Brother Harry? That was an amazing prayer. I thought, I don't even need to preach a sermon. <laughs> that just wonderfully encapsulated what Paul wanted to convey. And evidently, this church in Ephesus, they needed to be reminded of this message, this message that seems so clear and obvious to us. One commentator notes this, the Ephesian church's habit of not praying for all people was symptomatic of the more significant issue of the leader's selective theology. You, you remember a few weeks ago how we looked at the law, right? We saw it was, it was a hard word, you know, because these false teachers had begun to take the law, go down rabbit trails, look for controversies, myths, speculations, and it led them to miss the point. And here, Paul is reminding the church that the gospel is for all people. Don't listen to these false teachers who have wandered down the law, looked at the Old Testament, and got com- gone completely wrong. 
Their prayers were beginning to be only for a select group of people. Paul says, that's not right, Timothy. That's not right, and it's not right for us today in our Sunday gatherings. Just as Brother Harry prayed in our small groups and in our individual prayer lives, we have to be a people who make prayers and intercessions on behalf of all people. Not just for our own lives, not just for our family, not even just for the church, but for all people. We have to widen the scope of our prayers. And then Paul adds, after this, he says that we should be praying for kings and all who are in high positions. For kings and all who are in high positions. You know, it's one thing for us to pray for our own needs, to pray for our family's needs, to pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, although for some of us that might even be tough. But Paul pushes us further. He pushes us further. And he says, the church needs to be a people who pray, who pray for their rulers. In line with this prayer, Paul had reminded the church in Rome, he said this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then a few verses later in Romans 13, Paul would add, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Remember, sometimes we think that Paul wrote these words to churches that were living the good life. But it's not true. Paul was writing to churches who were soon going to suffer severe persecution at the hands of the rulers that they were told to pray for. John Calvin comments on these verses. He says, He, that is Paul, expressly mentions kings and other magistrates because, more than all others, catch this, they might be hated by Christians. All the magistrates who existed at that time were so many sworn enemies of Christ, and therefore this thought might occur to them, that is to Christians, that they ought not to pray for those who devoted all their power and all their wealth to fight against the kingdom of Christ, the extension of which is above all things desirable. You see, Paul knew that this would be a hard task for many of the Ephesians. He knew that it would be a hard task for some of you here, for some of our brothers and sisters in the world, for our brothers and sisters in Newfoundland right now. But Paul's charge is clear. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your local government. Pray for your provincial and federal governments because the gospel is for all people. So widen the scope of your prayers. And then secondly, Paul says, in order to expand your view of grace, you need to live with an aim to witness. Look with me to verse 2 again. Paul says to pray for all people and for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is interesting. Paul says that we should be praying for our leaders' salvation and also for their favor, that we can live in a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified way. Paul says pray for your leaders that they would be saved and pray that they would rule in such a way that it can be, in one sense, easy for you to be Christians. One commentator, he helps us here. 
He says, in contrast to the opponents who are bringing disrepute on the church, the church is to pursue a lifestyle characterized by tranquility, calmness, reverence, and dignity. See, evidently, these false teachers in power were not living lives that adorned the gospel. They were spoiling the gospel. This should never be the case. Instead, God's word to us is to pray. Pray for our leaders so that we can live lives where we're not persecuted for our faith, where we can go to church freely, where we can broadcast our sermon online without fear, where we can preach the gospel in our homes, to our neighbors and our communities in our workplaces. We should be praying to the end that our Christian witness would make Christ and his gospel attractive to the lost men and women we rub shoulders with every day. Paul says, simply put, church, live with an aim to witness. If you want your, your view of grace to grow, start living knowing that you're, the people that you're rubbing shoulders with day in and day out are actually watching you and that God's love actually extends to them. Remember that. Live with an aim to witness. And I, let's just be honest. We forget this, don't we? Don't we forget this? Probably just like you and I, or probably just like you, I have had so many conversations over the past 18 months about the church's response to the pandemic. You know, and sometimes people try and, you know, goad you. They try and bring you into these conversations. And it's, let's be honest, sometimes it's, it's hard to not enter into their frustration. Or maybe you've had conversations like me about some of the awful failings of some of the church's leaders. Friends, the world is watching, aren't they? They're watching. They're listening to us. We are meant to be ambassadors of Christ. Rather than being known for being always up in arms about something, we should be aiming to live lives that put all the attention on our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Rather than being known for constantly shaking our fists at the government, complaining about taxes, complaining about restrictions, we should be trying to live lives that make it impossible for anyone to bring a negative charge against us. Do you think that's impossible? You can actually raise your hands. Do you think that's impossible in this time? Well, it isn't. How many of you are with us as we went through the book of Daniel? You can can put your hands up. So you remember Daniel was dragged off. Daniel was one of the, uh, the young, bright Jewish boys. And he was brought off. He was indoctrinated by the, the Babylon rulers, taught to basically forget all that he had learned of his Jewish history, forgive me, Jewish background. And, but, but God gave great favor to Daniel, didn't he? He gave, gave great favor to Daniel, and Daniel rose up the ranks But what happens when you rise up the ranks? People begin to be jealous, right? People begin to be jealous. So Daniel had a few people who wanted to take him down, a few people who wanted his job. So what did they do? They watched him as he got up, and they watched him as he went about his day, and before he went to bed, trying to find fault with him so that they could accuse him to the king. But what happened? What happened? They couldn't find any fault with Daniel, except this, that he loved and served the God of Israel. Daniel 6.5 says this, 
Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Can you imagine if that's what people said about the church? Imagine if that's what your neighbors said about you and your coworkers said that about you. Your lost family said that about you. Imagine if that's what the city of Aurelia said about the churches in Aurelia. That's a challenge, isn't it? I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Every day this week, driving to work, you know, I, I pray for the, for the day at hand, and I pray for my lost coworkers and lost family. And this part of the text just was like a knife to my heart. Do I live that way? Do I live with an aim to witness every single day of my life? Is that on our brains? You know, living with an aim to witness can be hard for, for people like Christians, like, like us Christians living in North America with so much affluence. Because we have so much. And if we're honest, anytime somebody wants to come and, and threaten our cozy lifestyle, we recoil and we lash out. And we become bad citizens at times. You know, there's a saying in sports, I'm not getting this perfectly, I think Josh Allen would know this better, but it's hard for an athlete to get out of bed and train like he's broke when he's got $50 million in the bank. And my point is that I think as Christians, sometimes our lives are so good here and we have so many good earthly treasures that it's just hard to keep our witness at the forefront because we're worried about our houses, we're worried about our toys, We're worried about our paychecks. But Paul right-sizes our situation. He says, the goal of your life, church, is to proclaim Christ. That's the goal of your life. Your life is not your own. So live in such a way that you're proclaiming the excellencies of God. As you get up and go to work, as you pay your taxes, as you submit to regulations that you might not wholly agree with, and as you raise your kids to do these same things, remember that as Paul said, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior. So widen the scope of your prayers, live with the name to witness, and thirdly, Paul says, marvel at God's incomprehensible love. That's how we widen our view of grace. That's how we expand it. That's how we make sure that we never fall into the trap of believing that somebody is too far gone for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stare at the gospel time and time again. We preach it to ourselves. And by the Spirit of God, we don't grow tired of it. Look with me to verse 3. Paul says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man Jesus Christ. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says it's good to pray for all people. And it's good to be good citizens. Because God desires that everybody would hear the truth. And believe it. We're reminded here of the awesome scope of God's love. Far from being only for a select few, it is a love that extends to all 
people. And because of this, friends, it's a love that must be proclaimed to all people. You know, this should be a verse that transforms us. This should be a verse that transforms our view of God. Because here we see he has a tender, loving, and merciful, and gracious heart towards sinners, to rebellious creatures that would rather go their own way. When we're tempted to be stingy with the gospel, when we're tempted to be stingy with the love of God, God is willing to extend his love to all, even to his enemies. His heart is tender towards this broken world. Do you believe that? Think about how often God demonstrated his love and patience towards the people of Israel. The people of Israel were a select group. God chose them to be a blessing, right? He was going to save them and bless them, and they were going to be a light amongst the nations. But we quickly learned that the Israelites weren't very good at that, were they? Moses takes them out of, Israel, out, out, of, out of Egypt, forgive me. They cross the Red Sea, and quickly they begin to doubt whether or not God would provide for them. And they begin to long for the days of Egypt. But think about how they refused to wait for Moses to come down the mountain. Remember the golden calf incident? They couldn't wait 40 days. They already began to doubt that God was with them. Think about how many times Israel, when confronted with a stronger nation than them, instead of crying out to the God of the Exodus, what did they do? They decided to pay tribute to the nation surrounding them so that they wouldn't be slaughtered. My point is that Israel, Lord, they were not good people. They weren't. They forgot constantly how good their God was, how great he was and able to save them. But God, hear me, he he never let his steadfast love depart from them. Even when he threatened exile, even when he said it's coming, he always promised that he was going to redeem them again. We catch this beautiful glimpse of God's heart in Hosea. This is almost a shocking Bible verse. You go, it's actually in the scripture, but God says this in Hosea 11. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Our God is one who delights to see sinners turn to him in repentance, trusting in the work of Christ. That is our God. That's our God. He is great, mighty to save. Hallelujah. And we could stop there and we could be challenged and encouraged, but but Paul goes further. He wants to explain to us not only how how great God's love was, but also how he demonstrated it to us. Look with me to verse 5. Paul says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, first off, Paul emphasizes the office of Christ as our mediator. Right? A mediator is, is merely someone who, who goes in between two 
parties. And Paul says, between God and mankind, there's only one. There's only one person who could go in between. And that's Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He's in heaven right now interceding for us. Isn't that good news? He's in heaven interceding for us. He's our mediator. And Paul answers the question as to how did he do that? How did he become our mediator? Well, Jesus took on human flesh. He became a man. That's the incarnation. We saw a bit of snow this morning, or at least some of you did. Christmas time is coming. And that's when we celebrate the fact that Christ truly became a man. While retaining his divinity, he took on our humanity. And then he lived as a man. And not just as any man, but the perfect, the perfect man. Where Adam had fallen into sin, Christ never did. Where I fell into sin, Christ never did. Where you fell into sin, Christ never did. A few weeks ago, as we looked at at, at the law, you know, we saw that there was all these restrictions, right? The law was put in place to, to keep back sin, right? To keep back our evil hearts and inclinations. But the law was also there to tell us what to do. There was a positive aspect of the law. We don't always talk about this, but Christ, in fact, fulfilled every dot and iota of the law. Everything that we were supposed to do, he did. All the good things we tried to do and couldn't do, all the things that we didn't try to do when should have done and should have done, Christ did. Every second of his life was in conformity to the righteousness of God the Father. He became a man for us. And it's through his righteous life, death, and resurrection that Paul tells us he became our ransom. In other words, Jesus is the price. He was the price in order for, for you and I to be forgiven and brought back to God. His perfect life, free from sin, was traded for yours and mine. That's how God purchased us. Everlasting life came through the death of the Son of God. As the Apostle Peter says, knowing that you, he's talking to the church, knowing that you, that is Jew, Gentile, Redeemer City Church, knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our salvation is great. God's grace is great. And the cost for you and I to be saved was great. Jesus, the perfect one, took our sin, went to the cross, was forsaken on our behalf, cursed of God, absorbing the wrath of God, and in exchange, you and I received Christ's righteousness. That's how we were ransomed. That's how we were saved. And Paul says, marvel in this again and again and again, and your view of grace will grow. And as it grows, he says, fourthly, preach the truth indiscriminately. He says, preach the truth and preach it to everyone. 
don't hold back. Look with me to verses 5 to 7. Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, judging by Paul's words, and we have, as we have alluded to already this morning, these false teachers in some way were beginning to restrict the gospel. They weren't preaching it to everyone. They weren't praying for all people. But Paul is adamant. Christ was the ransom for all people. Not just the select few, not just the Jews, not just some Gentiles, but for all people. And Paul says, this is why I was appointed. That's why he was appointed, to preach the good news of salvation. And by extension, friends, you and I and the church at large is given the same mandate. We're to preach this truth and we're to not hold back. We're not to harbor grudges. Maybe it's against close family and friends, neighbors, co-workers. We're to not harbor that, those so that it leads to us neglecting to preach the word to them. Maybe there's a community that some of you just can't seem to love. Maybe there's racism in some of your hearts. Friends, I think we need to hear the implicit warning in this text. Woe to us if we don't preach the gospel. Woe to us if we refuse to offer it to certain people. Woe to us if we don't pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel to those people in our lives. Woe to us if we don't pray and support gospel work across Canada, across the nations. Woe to us if our hearts are callous to sinners being dragged to hell each and every day. Woe to us. Because, friends, as Pastor Levi wonderfully said last week, sometimes we've got to speak hard truths. But hard truths are better at, than hard falls. That's you were right. And the gospel is the, the one and only way that men and women are going to be saved. Amen? It's, it's the one way. Paul says there's one God and there's one mediator. So woe to us if we neglect proclaiming this good news because we are afraid of what people will think. Woe to us if we put what people think about us ahead of the glory of God, ahead of lost men and women. Woe to us. Because if God longs to see all people saved, hearing and believing in the gospel, as we read in the text this morning, then we cannot be a people who are quiet in proclaiming it. This was Paul's life goal. His mission was to see men, women, boys and girls of all sorts, of all types, turning from their sin and living lives that proclaimed the glory of Christ. And Jesus told us to do the same. He said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says our lives should be the catalyst 
or lost men and women coming to faith. The gospel is the good news, and it's for all people. It's for our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, our leaders, the rich and the poor, from Canada to China, because as Paul reminds us, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Thanks be to God. As we come to a a close this morning, friends, I want to leave us with one hard but good question. It's a hard question, but it's a good one. It's a question I've asked myself. I'm sure Pastor Levi's been asking himself this week. Do we really, truly believe this? Do we truly believe in the scandalous and awesome scope of God's love? Do we really believe that God desires all people to be saved? James tells us, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, we can say we believe all the right things, but if it doesn't lead to action, then we're proving that we don't really buy it. Believing or saying we believe the right things isn't enough. No, believing must lead to action. Believing must lead to change. It must lead to transformation. And friends, this is an amazing message. Like this, this, forget not the message, the text, is it not? Isn't that a good reminder? Do we hear that enough? That God desires all people to be saved? Probably not. But with great power comes great responsibility. And that's why I want to lean in and be heavy here. Because I think we should. We have this great message, this great promise. So we have a great responsibility. If we truly believe this, then friends, it has to change the way that we pray. We ought to be a people who pray for the lost around us with zeal and with tears. Are we praying for our lost family with urgency? Are we praying for our lost neighbors by name? That their hearts would be softened, that opportunities would come for the gospel. Are we praying for our leaders, not only for their salvation, but so that they would rule in such a way that we would have favor? And are we praying for our mission partners? across the globe, as though we truly believed that God desired to save lost men and women across the globe. If we truly believe this, friends, then it has to change the way we live. Are our lives displaying the saving work of Christ? Do our co-workers, do our neighbors, do they look at us and say, does our government, do they look at us and say, wow, I might not agree with everything they say, but they live good, quiet, godly, dignified lives? Are we living that way? And then lastly, friends, if we truly believe this, then it must change the way that we worship. If we truly believe in the good news of the gospel, if you and I have tasted it and seen it, if we've seen in Christ the sufficiency for our sins to be gone once and for all, for us to be reconciled to God the Father for all time, And if we believe that this message is offered to all, then this is going to transform us. It's going to transform us by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit to pray this way from our first breath every morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will 
be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If, that, if, that if we believe this, it'll change us? That it'll change our heart's disposition? I do believe this. I know for certain that if you and I, by, by glory, by degree of glory to the next, right? Not perfectly, but slowly by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we grip these truths more and more and grasp them in our heart of hearts, day by day, then we're going to cling less to the world and more to the treasures of Christ. Our prayers, our habits, our desires, our heart's disposition is going to be more focused on how we can experience and know the love of God and extend it to the world. Do you believe that? My friends, I, I imagine that there's a, a, there's a few people, or forgive me, not a few people, there's different responses to a sermon like this. I'm sure, and, and if this is you this morning, then lean hard into this. I'm sure that there's some of you here that have felt the Holy Spirit's conviction and you're saying, yeah, I, I haven't been praying. Maybe you haven't been praying at all. I haven't been praying for my lost friends, my lost family. I don't pray for our leaders. I don't live with an aim to witness. I'm, I'm, too, I'm, I'm too caught up with my own kingdom. If that's you this morning, then lean hard into the Spirit's conviction, for that's a good thing. That's the beginning of change. But if you're here this morning, and, and by God's grace, God's giving you a love for the lost more and more, and lean into that too. Keep on. Keep on. But for all of this this morning, my prayer would be that we would leave with an expanded view of the grace of God. That we ourselves would have experienced just how amazing it is to be saved by the precious blood of Christ Jesus. To know that our sins are washed away. To know that we have an inheritance in heaven being guarded by Christ Jesus and that we will be with him in glory forever. That would be my prayer. Let's leave with that view of grace. Because friends, when we, lay, when we leave this place with that view of grace, it's going to transform everything that we do. The gospel is good news, friends. And it's for all people. Let's be a people who believe this who love this, who never stop proclaiming it for the glory of God, for the worship of his name, and for the good of all peoples. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we declare... In Jesus' name, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we ask that by your spirit, through the saving work of Christ, through our new relationship with you, Lord, the promise of eternal life, Lord, that we would live our lives glorying in Christ and how he has saved us and living lives that declare this, Lord. I pray now, Father, that you would help us. Help us because we are weak and forgetful. We are distracted easily, Lord. So I pray that you would expand our view of your grace, of your love for us and for sinners across the globe. Do that. 
do that for the sake of your name, of your fame. For our good, Lord, and for the glory of your name. We pray this and ask this in the saving, wonderful name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? wanted to say just before we begin this this final song I wanted to say one word to to those of you who maybe you're here today and you're you're visiting with someone maybe you've been here for an awful long time um, and yet you are not yet a Christian and you've never even thought about what that would mean Uh, you know what is it to be a Christian is it is it to live a a good life you know a, a life like kind of what we heard about here where you're well thought of by outsiders is that what it means to be a Christian Well, no, actually, you find the heart of it in the text we saw this morning. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for us. To be a Christian is to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way that I can come before my Heavenly Father, that all of us one day are going to stand before the judge, and when we stand before the judge and he looks at our lives, there is not a single one of us who is going to have a perfect life that God will say, all right, you're in. No, the, the law condemns us. The law shows that we all need a savior. And so in desperation and faith, we say, well, wh- what can we do? Who is our savior? And, and our text today reminds us that your savior is Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life you couldn't live. That life's already been lived. Jesus did it for you. And then he gave his life as a ransom for you. So when you stand before God and there's a, a life that needs to be paid, Jesus has paid it for you. And look to him in faith and cry out and say, Lord Jesus, would you be the savior of my life? Turn from your sin, lay hold of Christ in faith, and be saved. It is that easy. It's that glorious. It's that incredible. As Matt said, you know, marvel at this amazing love of God. That it is not go home now and work really, really hard for the next five weeks and come back and we'll see where you're at. No, it's not that. It's look right now to Jesus and be saved. Charles Spurgeon is like the greatest preacher in the history of the church outside of, of course, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, I would assume. He wound up in a church and it was a guest preacher who was speaking and it was a snowstorm and Spurgeon sat in the back row and, uh, and this preacher didn't have anything prepared. It was, it was a snowstorm. So he just started preaching on look to Jesus and be saved. It doesn't take much to look. Any of you here can do the looking. Look to him. Look to Jesus and be saved. That was the extent of the sermon. And yet he sat at the back and he was so rocked by this. That's it. Look to Jesus and be saved. And it would be a horrible tragedy if anybody in this room stands before that judgment seat one day where the price has already been paid by Jesus, but you didn't lay hold of that. And instead you wind up paying the price yourself. And God's word says that that will be the case. When we stand before God, there's only one mediator. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we're going to sing this song in response to what we've just heard from the text. But if you're here and you have not done that, then can I just plead with you right now? Look to Jesus and be saved. Look to him and be saved. (laughs) Trust in him. And then talk to the person next to you, or talk to me, talk to anybody, and say, I'm looking to Jesus. What do I need to know? And we would love to talk to you about this faith and what Christ has done for us. But But hear the invitation now, and we're going to sing this invitation. And some of us may have been living in the church for a long time, and we need to look to Jesus this morning. So let's do just that.